Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So, it's World War II. It's just ended and we have world peace. I'm kidding, of course, that's not the way it happened. We had a very cold war. And my guest today is none other than James Pelfrey. He is an historian, writer, educator, pursuing to graduate and postgraduate studies in education in American history and religion. And uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Pleasure. Pleasure to be here. Uh, what was really interesting in the Cold War and the Russian history in specifically? The, uh, you know, I think I, uh, over time, I think it, it developed um, organically, I think I would say, I, I, I could say that. It's, it's, when you look at the history of modern Europe, you can't look at it in uh, a context without the imprint of Soviet influence and the Cold War. Um uh, when World War II ended, uh, as you as you sort of alluded to in your uh, preface, the concept and the idea was that you know we're finally going to be a world at peace, and um, quite the opposite happened. Quite the opposite happened, and it not only happened in Europe, it happened in China, Southeast Asia, Africa. Latin America, throughout the entire world. So it was very, very um, uh, dark period, I think, in in world history because it really solidified a division between uh, East and West. Um, uh, But it was certainly nothing new, and it was certainly nothing that anybody uh, who knew the history of the Soviet Union in relation to the other nations that surrounded it, including the United States. Do you think most uh, of the West as well as Russia and the Soviet Union as this more backwards kind of culture? I don't understand Okay. When at the, I, I believe, and I think I'm one of few historians who can, who really draw these parallels and pull them all together. Um, just like I believe that World War II was really an extension of World War One, I, I feel that the Cold War was really an extension uh, and a continuation of uh, of um, um, I guess I would say international hatred toward the Soviet Union. Right. Um, you know, at the, at the during World War. Uh, one, the Tsar was uh, Tsar Nicholas II was losing, uh, was losing badly. Millions of people died, uh, and Lenin 
um, promised the uh, Russian people that not only would he provide for them food and a redistribution of land, but he would immediately withdraw troops um, from the war. And he made good on his promise. Okay. But uh, that left the Soviet, what would eventually become the Soviet Union, very isolated because there were no friendly nations surrounding it. Um, and uh, there were different philosophies that were coming up among the, the uh, Russian revolutionaries. You know, Trotsky had the idea of world revolution, uh, while others were saying, you know, let's build up uh, Russia and the Soviet Union at this point to become a power so that we can dominate um, uh, the world um, and overtake it with, with our philosophy. We saw communist insurrections in Germany before the Nazis took place. There were communist uh, partisans during World War II that were fighting against the Nazis uh, throughout Europe. Um, and um, it, it, it really, the groundwork was really set, I believe, um, about a hundred years ago, probably just you know even before the end of world war one right and uh, that brings us to because they were allies so the us and ussr were allies during the end of the world war ii and uh, how did us how did they decide to split berlin and germany when war we we were allies but it was more of a practical element so remember that hitler was fighting a war on two fronts um, he was fighting against the, he was trying to overtake Britain with the Battle of Britain. Um, and um, consequently, in, or, or at the same time, had invaded the Soviet Union because they were basically um, had the idea of Liebenstrom, living space, to expand their master That's race for their, that. as right, as a, for, you know, for the, a Reich that was going to last for a thousand years. And, um, uh, but Russia also had oil. Russia also had minerals uh, and things to, that would help um, propel this war machine to its world's conquest. So um, when, uh, um, when Germany invaded the Soviet Union, um, um, you know, it was basically Britain and the Soviet Union who were fighting the Nazis. The United States didn't really, at the time, were still coming out of the Great Depression. We were still very isolationist in our foreign policy. And um, we were dragged into it by into World War II um, by the declaration of war by Germany and by the attack um, at Pearl Harbor uh, uh, by the Imperial Japanese. Yeah. Um, the split of Germany happened after the end of World War II. And um, it basically, as allies, we were allies practically, but there was always tension between the British and the Americans and the Soviets, because Stalin had a very different idea of how Europe was going to look once uh, the Nazis had surrendered. Um, and he made that very clear um, during negotiations in, in Potsdam and Tehran 
um, with both Roosevelt and with Truman. Um, and uh, when the occupying forces came in to Germany, the whole concept was that they were only going to be there temporarily because Germany had be experienced total defeat, total destruction. And um, the occupying forces, the British, United States, the allies, um, uh, were really there just to were there to to support it from from collapsing into absolute anarchy and chaos, uh, even though it it practically already had. Um, Germany split only because well, there are several reasons, but it was mostly because Stalin refused to relinquish his power over the eastern states. Um, an invasion of the Soviet Union of that magnitude could never happen again and would never happen again, uh, at least not on his watch. Um, and I, I, part of that was really practical uh, for them to, to create that buffer. So if you ever had to, we're going to invade the Soviet Union from the west into the east, you had to go through occupied Germany, you know, uh, communist uh, East Germany, communist Poland, and then into the Soviet Union, which of course it would be very, very difficult to, to, to accomplish at that point. So I think the uh, friendship between the United States and, and the Soviet Union um, during World War II and, and, uh, and post-World War II was merely practical, um, but it was, it was, there was no way that those two ideologies could have ever really solidified anything very friendly for, for, for very long. Right. And uh, yeah, so that's terms of follow-up, but how, then we comes to the nuclear, because as we will know, America bombs Japan with a nuclear bomb. And of course, Soviet Union was a piece of the nuclear action. So how, how did USSR spies in the nuclear program and how did they manage to stay so did they have their own scientists working on this or did they just send kgb agents to america because there was quite a few agents there as well there's there, there were a lot of there was a lot of international uh espionage for both sides but the nuclear arms race really basically started because They, the Soviets and the United States knew that if Germany had ever gotten their hands on a nuclear weapon, they would use it. Right. Okay. Um, uh, how the Soviets real in the and and spies really got their hands um, on it is really open, I think, to discussion. I don't know that all of those official documents were ever really released. A lot of that is conjecture. Some would say that they had stolen it from the United States. Some say the United States had stolen it. Uh, from, some say that they shared uh, information uh, among them to to sort of isolate uh, Germany, at least keeping it from them. What, um, you, what is your theory about this? My, oh, well, I would only be theorizing, but I, I think I, I would say that when I would say that the United States and the Soviet Union, in my opinion, just opinion, just opinion, uh, would have had to work together on that. Um, 
only because the mutual interest at the time was to keep weapons like that out of the hands of of Germany right. or the Nazis. I, I should correct say. That Hitler wasn't really that interested in the nuclear program in the first place. It... He wasn't. Um, it's really kind of interesting to hear to to say that because there are instances in Nazi Germany where Hitler really tried to avoid using weapons of mass destruction um, and ordered his his generals not to use things like certain types of nerve gas, rice, and things like that that, that had been developed for use in battle. Um, and I don't know what really would be behind that. I think maybe uh, the fact that he uh, had been a victim of a gas attack attack himself during World War One, and he maybe he knew how horrible it was. I don't know. Um, that goes a little more in the psychology of of uh, Adolf Hitler, which would be an entirely different podcast. Oh yes. Um, but uh, uh, um, uh, I, I don't think he had much interest in it. But I think if he knew, uh, it would bring up a speedy. Um, uh, end or speedy surrender to um, Britain or to the United States, I don't know that he would not have used it. Right. So, you know, I don't, I think for, if you look at Nazi history, it's really kind of hard to say this, but I really think their method of conquest was purely air and land. And I think they really got their pride from knowing that they did it by force and not by, you know, bombastic weaponry of some kind, you know. <clears throat> and uh, that brings us to the Korean Wars. And what, what was the reason for the Korean War and why did both USSR and the US was interested in Korea in the first place? Several reasons for the Korean War, and the Korean War, <clears throat> excuse me, is still being fought, if you ask me, um, because, just a moment, please. No worries. I mean, most of, most of us should know the background that they split the country in two and they wanted to reunite later. Korean War, very good question. Kim Il-sung was a guerrilla fighter in the communist movement in Korea um, fighting against the invasion, the invading occupying forces of the Japanese. They were very nationalistic. Um, they wanted to, um, one moment, please. I'm sorry, I'm losing okay. my. Okay, it's just having a little problem, difficult to say, so we just gonna, yeah, there we go. I have to drink my tea, excuse me. No worries. When um, it was a very similar situation that we saw in Europe, uh, Kim Il-sung, who was the um, uh, first um, leader of uh, North Korea, fought as a guerrilla, fought as a uh, communist insurrectionary in uh um, Japanese occupied Korea, and they had been occupied 
by Japan for for uh, many years before that. Um, uh, during um, World War II and after the surrender of uh, Japan, um, Korea was divided on the 38th parallel line uh, between Soviet forces in the north and American and other allied forces in the south. Um, the Soviets basically had administered that, the northern part, but only briefly um, until they could find somebody that they would be able to trust to administer this uh, in a way that would be um, um, satisfactory to, to both Soviets and um, later uh, China. Um, in um, 1950, the North invaded the South, crossed the 38th parallel, and, and basically conquered all of Korea. Well, by this time, the Cold War was completely frozen. Uh, dialogue between the Soviet Union and the United States was basically... Uh, 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 yes, it was. It was. I mean, it didn't. It wasn't even in existence really at that point. Um, in nineteen October of nineteen forty nine, the uh, uh, Mao Zedong and the uh, um, Communist Party of China uh, overthrew the nationalists um, and um, declared the People's Republic of China on the mainland. Okay, um, so the timing for Kim Il-sung's invasion of the South was not the best for everybody. Nobody really wanted um, another war uh, like that. Um, so the um, instead of the United States, it was the United, United Nations uh, that came in um, and um, under the leadership of General Douglas MacArthur and pushed the um soviet or excuse me the north korean armies passed up the uh 39th parallel all the way up i think if i remember uh toward the yalu river near the border with china now china was in the middle of a revolution and radical reforms and really couldn't afford another war uh after um, um, almost three decades of civil war within mainland China and, um, and fighting and occupying uh, force, uh, in, again, Imperial Japan. And, but to have American and, and United Nations forces that close to their border was intolerable for Mao. So um, with uh, a little bit of Mao's help um, and some aid from the Soviet Union at the time, um, the North Korean forces were able to beat back down United Nations forces back to the 38th parallel where they basically signed an armistice that's been in place since then. So the war, nobody really surrendered in that war, um, 
Pyongyang, the, the capital, was completely leveled. It was a scorched earth, devastating, um, uh, um, horrible, horrible um, outcome for the capital of North Korea. The entire – everything that's in North Korea now was completely rebuilt after right. that. It was it, – it, it was, there was more tonnage dropped on Pyongyang than in the Allied Air Forces during World War II. Millions and millions of people died. Millions were left homeless and starving. Um, and uh, you still hear that in their diatribes, um, basically for for public consumption. That when you know when in even today in North Korea, when um, if a, a student is lucky enough to be in a school where they will be able to learn English, they learn British English and not American English because it's you know we're we're still the the we, we are uh, you're not but uh, we're still the 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 arch enemy oh, yeah, I uh, for them yeah so it 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 was very and um that never i think that was really in my opinion other than vietnam which is a again another completely different podcast um that was one of the major pro in fact that was the first proxy war uh between the um um the um iron curtain and um the the other nations so it was it was really um something to see it uh forced uh the united states and britain um and france and and the other nations of western europe to realize that the uh as as much as they didn't like the idea uh, that that North Korea was going to be a fact, and definitely um, communist China was going to be a fact of life that they were going to have to deal with, um, especially later when China developed their own nuclear weapon systems. But do you believe that the, both for the democratic countries, both in Europe and especially America, that with the rise of Mao and both North Korea, I mean, Kim Il sorry, I don't say his name wrong again. But uh, do you think that the US fear that the rise of communism would be spread both throughout Asia and Europe? I think they were afraid that it was going to be, yes, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And there's absolute evidence that the United States um, was very active at the time in undermining local elections, not only in Europe, but in other parts, in Latin America. Uh, the Caribbean um, undermining uh, free elections, putting in uh, power their own strongmen. Um, if uh, somebody who happened to have some sort of uh, left wing or anything good to say about the Soviet Union, um, they were very quick to work to have that individual replaced. We saw that in uh, uh, Chile with uh, uh, Salvador Allende. Um, and then replaced with dictators were, who were just as bad, if not worse, than the communists that they were replacing. So, uh, I mean, it's it, they used a lot of imagery about you know freedom and democracy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the democracy really wasn't there in a lot of cases. You know, it took decades for South Korea to develop 
um, into w- how we what we would recognize as South Korea today. They had military coups. They had strong men um, that you know squashed free speech, broke up unions, all these different kinds of things. With the end, so, and I also going to ask you this same. It's kind of the same question, but do you think that they fear that communism will rise in Japan as well, or do you think that they will... very much so? And I think when 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 Japan Japan after two nuclear weapons, very much like uh, Korea and Germany, uh, were devastated. They were devastated. Um, and they would have been very ripe for a communist insurrection. So you, when when that government was being reformed, um, you see, and you see this in Western Europe too. Um, it, it's interesting how they, and I don't want to get into any political commentary here because there's no no place. But it's interesting that you see. Uh, in Japan, where they have you know free uni- uh, universal education for everybody, they have universal health care, um, uh, things like that. Yes, and you see that in you see that in in Western Europe too. Um, we the United States, uh, the big boy um, in uh, the Cold War against the Soviet Union, um, had no problem supporting social democratic politicians who could provide the things that the communists were saying that they were going to provide without being totally antagonistic toward American interests. Right. So we saw that in West Germany. Um, uh, eventually, England had their own national health system, uh, things like that to provide for their people to sort of put the lights out on these you know, com- you know, communist and socialist uh, parties um, because they would have nothing really to, to agitate about. Do you think that in a way saved the democracy, the free healthcare system, uh, free education? I don't know that it saved. I don't know that it saved it. I'd say uh, it was really um, a shot in the arm for it. I would say it. I would say it would really um, assisted and uh, eased that transition um, for people who were coming out of a very uh, devastating and traumatizing f- first half. Of the entire 20th century was basic was just war for for Europe and and for Asia. Um, of course, it goes further down, but I mean, nobody wanted to see anything like what you would eventually see happen in uh, places like uh, Cambodia or Laos. Right. Where it was the the government's just absolutely collapsed, and um, these communists were in Africa. Uh, these communist movements came in, um, and were just just some of the most brutal dictatorships that we have yeah. known yes, on have record. Of as well, right. Brutal. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now I'm about to be. Because we've all seen James Bond and we've all seen uh, spy movies once or twice at least. And so how Soviet Union had probably some of the most efficient spy, spy projects in the world. So how did the KGB operate and how did they manage to do so well? And I mean, if you'd read the book, 
Deep Undercover by Jack Barsky, you get a little taste, which I highly recommend to read. It's a great book and really it's a page turner. But how did the KGB operate and how did they, where is, did they manage to be so efficient in and such a huge effect on the world? Good question. And I think uh, there's still remnants of the Soviet Union in Russia today. They still have um, an internal police. Um, I, they, I don't- I think they are operational, yeah. I don't know that they're at the magnitude of what we would expect the KGB to be um, in our spy novels, James Bond or or um, um, Hunt for Red October, those kinds of things. But when um, I think their mode of operation was really international over time. I, the framework for it was really built under czarist Russia. The czar had uh, a secret, uh, a secret police, and their I, their goal was eventually what the KGB's goal was going to be was to squash rebellion, to report any kind of um, uh, any kind of political uh, insurrections or agitators. Um, they were a little more gentle, I think, than <laughs> if we could say that, uh, than the KGB uh, would eventually be. Um, because when somebody was, I, if you read the history of the uh, Russian revolutionaries like Trotsky or Stalin, uh, their exiles weren't really all that terrible. I mean, they were they were basically sent to Siberia, uh, but they were allowed to read. Uh, if somebody could get out there and visit, they certainly had visitors, but there were the restrictions that you would later have in the Soviet prison complex. Um, um, they were, they were, again, as I kind of mentioned earlier, a lot of those documents about the KGB still haven't really been released. Um, but there is evidence, right? Well, you know, there's documents from every government that aren't, that haven't been released. Um, but, uh, I, I think the, how they worked, um, they, they certainly worked with, um, communist movements within the United States. Uh, they, they did have some spies in place in government um, uh, positions. And um, it, they, they were the, the most successful other than squelching all internal political insurrection. Uh, they really were successful in their um, obtaining secrets of the United States and our nuclear program. Um, so, I mean, during the, the Cold War, particularly uh, during uh, the 1950s and 1960s, um, the KGB was very active. 
um, in not just in internal infiltration within the Soviet Union itself, but external, and not just in their satellite nations like Poland or Hungary or Romania, but also in um, um, areas where there were either active communist um, revolutionary groups or potentially active communist revolutionary groups. And that's where the United States was very afraid of that because we didn't want to have a situation in the United States where we were being undermined from within by you know our arch enemy in, in the Soviet Union. Um, I don't you know I don't think it, it, looking at current events, I don't know that things are really entirely all that different. Um, I, I do believe uh, that, that that Russia still has very active um, espionage interests uh, throughout the world, and they have the technology to to do it. So I don't, um, I don't remember it. It was a few years ago. But wasn't there a Russian politician who was killed? Supposedly, there were several. There were and a, and a few Ukrainians. Um, Which supposedly um, KGB. Yes, um, you know, and they they do it. They still do it the old-fashioned way. You know, they'll they'll poison them with something that's tasteless, odorless, or whatever. The umbrella. Um, the umbrella and then and then then slow slowly slowly die. Um, um, and um, we still. I mean, it's it. it, it, it for all intents and purposes, although officially the Cold War ended when the Soviet Union um, fell, um, there are still a lot of those remnants, particularly when you have, um, uh, as president of Russia, a KGB man himself. So, you know, and, you know, like once a Marine, always a Marine, once a KGB operative, you're always going to be a KGB operative. So I don't know uh, that we've entirely uh, gotten away from that. But uh, I mean, it was very, they were very instrumental. They were very much like uh, the CIA in a lot of ways, you know. Uh, of course, in the United States, there's a lot of um, sort of savving of the conscience of our of our country uh in that we you know we were justified in doing it to stem off the communist uh hordes and invasion and and do it for democracy when really they weren't doing it for democracy at all but yeah uh, that's pretty us to the death of stalin in 54 if i remember the year correctly Joseph Stalin died in. I think. I think. Um, nineteen fifty-three. Right, and then uh, nineteen fifty-three. Again, if I remember, I may be wrong on the name here. So, uh, Kreshko takes over as Nikita Khrushchev. Uh, he didn't take over right away. Um, there was a little bit of a power struggle, um, and there was uh, George Malenkov briefly before Khrushchev uh, took over, but because he was so linked to Stalin and Stalinism, um, he didn't last uh, very long. In fact, if, if I'm, I want to say, um, 
I want to say that, yes, Malenkov and then um, But how, and then it was, does, and then it was Khrushchev. Excuse me, I'm sorry. Go, yes, go ahead, please. How does the how does it tell Khrushchev again? Khrushchev. Khrushchev. How does this affect the Cold War, both internal and external? His take. Very, on. very. Um, Khrushchev was very instrumental in changing the face of Soviet communism and communism throughout the world. Um, and he inspired events that trans that, that uh, took place in many different nations well after he had been removed from, from office. Um, when Khrushchev came to power as a Ukrainian communist, um, party uh, operative, not really the sharpest knife in the drawer, you know, not the, not the brightest guy there, but he was loyal and he would do what was asked of him and he would do it right the first time. So when he, he, he Stalin took notice of him, he eventually became um, a military uh, um, decorated uh, military officer during World War II. Um, and, um, you know, was very well thought of um, by Joseph Stalin. But as with any politician within Stalinist um, Russia or Stalin in the Soviet Union under Stalin, uh, he, of course, always had to be on guard because you never really knew when your time uh, might be up. He survived the great purges. Uh, he survived um, the, the, the war. Um, and then to, to really still have a position of influence uh, within the, the Politburo um, shows that, you know, he, he was truly de dedicated to it. Um, when Stalin died um, at the next Communist Party Congress, right. Khrushchev gives a speech denouncing Stalin, denouncing Stalinism, naming his crimes, calling, you know, and they went on a um, um, a campaign of uh, what was called de-Stalinization, where he was taken, although he was uh, still had some element of respect as having been, he wasn't elevated to that godlike status that he had had before de-Stalinization, um, which was very frightening to establishment communists because denouncing him undermined their power and their authority. And not only was that happening in the United States, it was being watched very closely 
by uh, Mao Zedong in China, um, Kim Il-sung in North Korea. So as that de-Stalinization began to to change the image of what Soviet communism was going to be like, um, it not only damaged relations with other Soviet or uh, other communist countries, um, it weakened Khrushchev's position. Because um, if you're if you're in you know if you're in position from your from the accomplishments of your accomplishments of your predecessor, and your predecessor is undermined, then your accomplishments are undermined as well. That was an intolerable. <clears throat> Again, another intolerable threat for uh, Mao Zedong in China and in uh, Kim Il-sung in North Korea, uh, who were not only working and striving to consolidate and hold on to their power, but to preserve their legacies within their nations. And um, from the de-Stalinization, we see um, relationships with, um, although the relationship with North Korea and China remain pretty friendly, um, um, relationships with the Soviet Union and with China completely broke down. So now we have not only one Soviet block of, of international communists, we now have it in two factions. Right. Those who would side with, you know, Mao, or those who would side with the Soviets, um, and of course the the uh, the movements and and uh, things that sided with uh, uh, Mao uh, were I, far more vicious than anything that would be uh, seen by um, uh, movements that were uh, influenced and supported by the Soviet Union itself. So Stalin, when Stalin died, um, he, um, he, his legacy was firmly in place. And when Khrushchev takes over and denounces Stalin, then the legitimacy, many felt that the legitimacy of the uh, movement of international communism was now going to be undermined. Right. So you're supposed um, this to be the start of the fall of the Soviet Union after the death of Stalin? <clears throat> I believe that the beginning of the U Soviet Union was the beginning of the fall of the Soviet Union, but I think this would be a very instrumental turning point um, because what we be, yeah, the, we see um, Khrushchev's removed from power in 1964. When Brezhnev takes over, it becomes a complete crony system, um, and um, they lack um, economic stability. They lack food. Um, you know, they're sp spending money um, throughout the world in proxy wars with the United States, um, in um, places like Angola. Um, Cuba, um, and all throughout Latin America and the Caribbean. 
So, uh, you know, and they didn't really have the the strength for very long to support that kind of um, communist imperialism, I guess. It was an oxymoron, of course. But, uh, you know, they didn't really have the resources to support that kind of um, um, warfare, you know, that sort of proxy warfare, you know, instead of directly engaging the Soviet Union, which nobody wanted to do, um, you know, give millions and millions and millions of dollars to another group to fight another group that's being supported by the the Americans or the British or, or something like that. So. And uh... This brings us to the space race, and why why was was space race both important for for the both of sides to in the Cold War? What effects did it have on the Cold War? I think the space race, in looking at the space race, when when Yuri Gagarin was the first to orbit the Earth, he was the first cosmonaut uh, to orbit the Earth before the United States did. Uh, the United States really saw that. <clears throat> Uh, the Soviets saw it as a victory. The United States saw that as a um, – they needed to – they saw that as um, really a threat because they didn't want to see any sort of communist expansion – on earth let alone in space right so <laughs> and you know if you can get up there and they were developing at the time technology um where they could actually have um uh, weapons uh, that could be operated from satellites etc cetera, etc cetera, etc cetera. um so that be really began um uh it, the space race um, then the United States, when President Kennedy uh, was inaugurated, one of their major goals was to put a man on the moon. So not only are we <laughs> – you want to orbit the Earth, well, we're going to put a man on the moon, okay? And, you uh, find by, it uh, kind of funny if the communists won and you still see a communist flag on the moon today. And, uh, you know, and well, they, I don't think they ever got back there to take it down. But um, you know, to, to, to just to see that rivalry in every aspect of foreign policy is really, in my opinion, is very astounding. It's nothing like we've ever seen in in world history before. It really isn't. It right. really isn't. This was more of a and technological war rather than an. It was war. really it, it. It was a war on many different fronts. It's not only it technological. It was nuclear. It was uh, on the ground. It was hand to hand. It was verbal wars remember khrushchev was at the united nations and took his shoes off and pounded his shoe on the podium that we're going to bury you khrushchev told vice president richard nixon that your children will live under communism your grandchildren will live under communism right um so these are very real boasts these are very real threats that he's making toward the vice president of the united states um and of course nixon the consummate cold warrior 
uh, later wrote um, uh, that also a brilliant, in my opinion, a brilliant foreign policy um, uh, observer, um, you know, later wrote that he couldn't he couldn't imagine how deadly serious this man was. And when they, you know, I mean, even later, um, secretary, the secretary of state of the Nixon administration, when they were negotiating, um, opening the doors with, uh, communist China for trade, um, said that they were subject to diatribes, anti-American diatribes, not only, in the press, but in the actual diplomacy, you know, we're doing this, but we're doing this under distress because you're still nothing but a bunch of an imperialist American pigs. And, you know, your system is going to fall and we're the ones that are going to ultimately win regardless of any treaties that we sign, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, were they right? Some economists say that China's economy is geared to surpass the United States within the next two or three years in growth. And we see this Chinese influence on Hollywood and in American media in general. Absolutely. In technology, technology. And, um, you know, were they right? Were they wrong? I leave that up to, um, you know, the pundits to, to, to hammer out between themselves. Um, but, uh, you know, they weren't, they were very, very serious when they were saying things like this. Um, because again, if you're dealing with somebody who every day in the news is denounced as an imperialist, and then all of a sudden they're not an imperialist, you, you have your, your whole system is based on hatred toward that nation. And now they're friends all of a sudden. So that undermines your legitimacy as a nation. So, um, you know, it would kind of like uh, later Ronald Reagan would coin the phrase trust, but verify right. in deals with, and he had, he had no problems getting up and walking away from negotiations with the Soviets. Didn't Ronald um, Reagan as well call the Soviet Union an evil empire? Right. But they were still calling us, you know the imperialists, you know, and we hurt when we, and by that time, radical Islam was becoming a problem in the Middle East. Right. So not only were we were trying to close in on the Soviets and communist influence, we now had this new problem of of um, uh, radical Islam uh, terrorists uh, starting in the Middle East, and uh, you know, Palestine Liberation Organization. Um, the the Baptist movement um, in Syria and Iraq, and then eventually what we saw with the Ayatollah uh, in Iran. Um, that uh, again, these are subjects that we can talk about in later podcasts. Of course, yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know how we got to that from the space race, but the space <laughs> race really was a tool for the Soviets. Um, and the Americans to really assert not only their domination on the planet, but in the galaxy, you know, so. 
Right. Which, uh, which brings us to the Cuban Missile Crisis. And why why did Castro want... So, of course, this is, Cuba is also going to be its own episode. But and So we don't have to go too much in Castro getting power. But why did Castro want missiles in Cuba? And how close were we to nuclear annihilation at the, the Cuban Missile Crisis? We were, I think we were closest to nuclear engagement with the Soviets than at that point than we had ever been. And it was something that we had always wanted to avoid. But Castro, when Castro overthrew the... To really understand that, it's kind of you have to sort of build up the groundwork a little bit behind Cuba and the Cuban Revolution itself. Uh, the dictator that that Castro overthrew, um, Batista. yes, Fulgencio Batista, uh, had been overthrown before. Uh, he wasn't well liked by his people, but he was well liked by the United States because he was a friendly government. Um, you know, he allowed businesses to come and do right. business. The and mafia was very well found of him as well. M- mafia was very uh, instrumental uh, in that um, during Prohibition, they were uh, providing rum to bootleggers to bring into the United States, all kinds of fun stuff there. Um, and he was a military officer doing this. So, right. um, And you, you see those kinds of relationships in nations like that between the United States and, and some of their uh, military people. When that government finally collapsed to um, Fidel Castro, Fidel Castro at that point was not a declared communist. In fact, he had approached the United he States for support. He socialist, I remember. But he, he, he approached the United States for support. And uh, those talks broke down under Eisenhower um, because they saw him as having overthrown um, an established uh, friendly government in a, a pretty close nation, um, and they didn't really want. It. And he said, "Okay, well, you know what? There are other people that will get, that can help us get this off the ground." And then they established a relationship with the Soviet Union. Um, but he when was he declared dependent himself, on the Soviet Union, right, for financial support and quite dependent, quite dependent. They were never very, they were never a very strong economy on their own. Um, but um, the Bay of Pigs invasion was really what started, what really ignited the um, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Again, I, meant, because, I mentioned this on the podcast before, but do you think it come down to that if Cuba hadn't had industrialized, do you think they would be as dependent on the Soviet Union? If they, as no, no, I don't think they would have. I really don't think they would have been so dependent. I really don't. I really don't. You remember that they came from a sugar plantation and slave-based economy. That's right. That's right. Very... Um, um, um yes very farm oriented um you know not not a very wealthy uh nation and as you said it was all based on a, a very old 
um, uh, farm and labor system, crop rotation and things like that. So no, if they were able to some sort of have in, uh, developed some sort of um, industry, um, I don't think we, I think there would have been a very different um, out, you know, turnout for, for Cuba. Right. Um, it's not to say that, that the, um, I mean, of course, any kind of revolutionary is going to uh, going to start with very high lofty goals and freeing people and helping, you know, bringing jobs and bringing education and um, <clears throat> modernizing healthcare, et cetera, et cetera, or even having healthcare where there might not have been any in the first place. Um, but over time, it became the very same, the same old, you know, communist. But again, we're getting off track here again, but let's get back to the Soviet missile crisis. Soviet missile crisis. Um, uh, the crisis. question, so your, your question was want to build up a little bit before we get into the 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 Cuban Missile Crisis uh, happened because the Cubans really wanted to protect themselves from another attempt to overthrow their government. Um, the Soviets, being their friends, were willing to assist them and began shipping arms and shipping missiles to Cuba, which wouldn't have been much of an alert to anybody except that Cuba is just about 90 miles off the coast of Florida, off the you know mainland United States, yeah. um, which was absolutely intolerable, which was absolutely intolerable. So the United States had to respond, of course, with their uh, ships, and, uh, that's right. And it was, um, it was a major, major face-off. And um, um, Soviets eventually backed down uh, uh, from it. But uh, that really was the closest that the United States and the Soviet Union had in an actual face-off, one-on-one you know. So what called it off? What called off the Cuban Missile Crisis in the first place? What caused the Cuban Missile Crisis? What called off? What called, what called off? off the Cuban Missile Crisis? I think it was a game of chicken. I think both sides were ready to press a button, but I think, but nobody really wanted to be the one to do it first, and um, the Soviets just backed off and took their weapons and, and went back home. Um, um, right, that, but the U.S. did the same in Armenia. Yes, and that uh, it left an indelible stain on our relationship with Cuba, uh, but it also provided decades of propaganda for the Cuban government. You know that we faced down the United States once we could do it again, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So, um, do you think um, Castro would have used the bombs eventually if he still? No, I don't. I personally don't. You think this would be a new North Korea situation? Very much so. 
I think when you have governments like that that may have weapons but have nothing else, um, they use that weaponry. And we've seen this several times in international diplomacy, but you, you, when they have weapons and nothing else, they use that weapon as their ace in the hole to sort of strong arm other countries or the United Nations for money or for food or for what, okay, we won't, we'll dismantle it this time, but we really need food because our people are starving. So it's not going to kids who got the best toys. Um... Right. 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 Or the, even as adults, you know, I've got the, um, uh, you know, somebody comes in with the uh, brand new 2020, uh, Nissan Altima, and then right. their neighbor has the 2021. Well, now who's the now, best? Right, who's better now? Right. Um, so it, it's it, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that in, right. in so history. I, I feel like there's a lot of childishness even in foreign diplomacy as well. Um, I, I uh, it. I've got the best powers. I got the best news. Childish, childishness. I'd say human nature. Right. Yeah. I don't know. Makes sense. Uh, you know, it's everybody's going to be looking. The uh, Henry Kissinger said geopolitics is the linking of the entire world for our own self-interests. So every nation is going to be looking out for their own, their own end of things. Okay. Um, but uh, uh, um, so then, you know, they will be a little bit childish. Sometimes their history might not be as accurate as official history on certain yeah. events um, uh, and things like that for them to get their, their point across. And uh, that's not uncommon. That's definitely not uncommon at all. Which, uh, of course, this again, I say this a lot in this podcast because there's so many topics that we talked about now that just t barely touch the surface. But the Vietnam War, what can we can talk a little bit about what triggered the Vietnam War and what? Because it's kind of the same as North Korea in a sense, they were both communist and, and, and democracy state, yes. split it in two. And uh, what, what kind of caused the trigger the Vietnam War? Well, well you. Uh, it, it... Vietnam happened well Vietnam was the Vietnam War was inevitable um, at the end of World War II um, you know the English had began to give up their colonies um, the French wanted to go back to Indochina and conduct business as usual um, of course that wasn't that couldn't be the case. Um, Ho Chi Minh was the leader of the um, of the um, uh, Vietnamese communists, um, and it, it, you're right. It was a very similar situation as what we saw in uh, uh, Cuba and maybe even in Germany, where you had the Soviet backed up in the north, and then you had. Uh, Americans and and or beginning the French really supporting North Korea, the North South, Korea. right? Oh, did I say Cuba? Excuse me. Yes, I did. Um, North North Korea. Excuse me. That's right. We're talking about so many different yeah exactly, different places yeah. where all this other stuff happened. But uh, um, when when Ho Chi Minh 
I think, spent a lot of time in his young years in France. Um, he spent some time in the United States. He was very influenced by the United States um, in the American Revolution, the the uh, Vietnamese Declaration of Independence, and their um, constitution is basically plagiarized from Thomas Jefferson. Um, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all are created equal, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think with that, I, there, there might have been some idea that they may have um, been able to sort of garner some support from the United States with that language. Um, uh, of course, that wasn't the case. <clears throat> the French, the French uh, were trying desperately to hold on to their colonies. Um, in Southeast Asia and in the post-war um, global political climate, they just it just wasn't possible. They were beat severely um, at uh, the Battle of uh, Bien Dien Phu. And at that point, they knew that they couldn't, they just couldn't do it anymore. So they couldn't do it learn. anymore. So hopefully learn by now that colonization never works. They they couldn't well maybe I, I I hope so, but um the uh it is so 18th century. <laughs> it's very and even earlier than that, but um <clears throat> the when the French couldn't do it anymore. Um, the United States began to step in, um, not by miles, but by inches, you know, with, you know, some advisors to help the South, Southern, South, um, uh, Vietnamese government. Um, but these nationalist and American governments were so weak and so corrupt, um, that they didn't, they didn't survive, <clears throat> They went through multiple coups, um, you know, and particularly um, one of our favorite um, uh, leaders in uh, South um, um, in uh, South Vietnam um, was uh, Catholic. The Lan was Catholic, and predominantly. Buddhist nation. So you already have that that memory of imperialism and um, resentment from a predominantly Buddhist nation. Uh, so you know, and they they were fighting Vietnam, the North Vietnamese. They were fighting a guerrilla war that we the the West just didn't quite understand. You know, and. Um, you know, within hours, you know, the bridges that we had bombed and devastated were being rebuilt. You know, they were operating under these intricate tunnel systems uh, through the north and the south. They had spies in the south um, um, and insurrections in the in the south. You know, um, when uh, uh, it became a real problem things really escalated was during the Tet Offensive when, you know, the North Vietnamese just got the drop 
on American forces everywhere and just, you know, and, and, you know, we really weren't really, I don't think the United States was prepared for the kind of battle that we were getting into in Southeast Asia. Right. Of um, course, uh, we don't, I don't want to draw too much into the Vietnam War because this will be, again, as we talked about before, this will be its own episode because it's such an in the big war that it needs, we, we can talk about hours of the Vietnam War and talk about Absolutely, it. absolutely. So, uh, but it, it yeah. was another, let me just add this to it and then we can move on of to course. another one of your topics. Again, when you start to see these common themes throughout the Cold War, you have communists trying, you know, building or trying to build up something, and you see the United States interpreting them as a threat and having to react to it. Um, you, you know, and it was it was really a very frightful time because, um, as we, you know, especially if they had weapons, uh, who's to say that they weren't going to allow, you know, their friendly nations to have some of these weapons? And I think that's what we were really trying to con that policy of containment, you know, just kind of keep corralling them um, to to prevent them from any any kind of. Uh, excess damage or unnecessary damage, you know, fallout, if you want to put a pun in there. We wish you will be back. I hope you will be back to discuss another episode of the Vietnam War eventually. And uh, yeah, this brings us to the Berlin Wall in 1961. So why did they build? Because until now, the what East Berlin Berliners had the ability to just go freely over to the west, but they realized that it was much better in the west than the east. So what, what so what was that some of the reasons that Soviet Union built the world because they wanted to keep them? They, they want, want, yeah. realized that democracy may, may have been better than communism. They wanted to prevent free travel between east and west Berlin. Um, you know, um, people in East Berlin were, like you said, they were defecting, um, refusing to go back. Um, and uh, uh, again, they wanted to not only limit that, but again, they wanted to assert their domination over over the East um, and uh, the uh, Soviet bloc and the Warsaw Pact nations. Um, and I, I think the building of the Berlin Wall was instrumental uh, for the Soviets to protect um, people from defecting to the West, but also to try to keep information from their, their realm to escaping into the West so that people didn't really know what was going on over there. Part of their um, uh, um, policy was secrecy so that they would always have the element of surprise. You know, the person with the most knowledge really had the most power. Um, and if all of their secrets are being revealed by people who are going over to the West, yeah you know, that compromises their, that would have compromised their, their authority. So um, it's a, it was also very symbolic 
of the division between east and west um and it's not a very it's not a very pleasant history to to really think about because you know one nation one people of a common language who had just endured one of the most horrific periods of concentrated terror under the third reich now have to deal with an even longer period of terror under eastern communism yes um is it really is it right to say that families were torn apart or is that more a myth than i would say that's absolutely true i i I think that that is absolutely true um um you know the communists really throughout history have gotten a bad reputation but it's very I, i believe it's very well earned i don't think um there's a book called the black book of communism that just basically gives you factual events of what was taking place in these nations you know and how many people you know were dead and et cetera et cetera et cetera and i you know there are some people i mean in factually if you look at the two greatest totalitarian movements of the 20th century fascism and communism if you lived under fascism and you sort of fit their ideal of what you were supposed to look like and you were kind of quiet um and worked and didn't really cause any problems um in a lot of cases you lived a pretty okay existence i mean you if you didn't have if there was nothing for anyone to suspect you know you weren't a cause for inter- um cause for any interest of you know under the gestapo or or anybody else in the soviet union everybody was a suspect nobody was safe um you know uh there were you know instances where with hitler had some disagreements with generals um many of them would would be fired you know uh and they wouldn't work anymore and in the soviet union they were killed so that's that's the difference here that's that's this disagree on the drill out for you sir right right i don't say that at all to express any sympathy toward fascism or totalitarianism there's just there was just a little bit of a of a difference between it right <clears throat> and that that then brings us to the end why enter of afghanistan and why was the ussr in, interested in afghanistan was there oil involved or was there something else i think when the um Oil may have been part of it, but I don't think Afghanistan really has any, <clears throat> you know, inherent minerals that are of really any use. They're a very poor country, um, and uh, um, oil may, but they needed the Soviet Union needed a foothold in the Middle East. Okay, right. The uh middle east nationalist movements you know that were led by um 
um, Nasser in Egypt, and eventually uh, names that we've still hear recently, um, uh, Assad in Syria or um, uh, Hussein in Iraq, while they may have been friendly to Soviet interests, they were not communists. In fact, uh, communists were persecuted under their regimes. Um, but so the Soviets needed a foothold in the in the Middle East because they saw the United States was had their footholds in the Middle East. Where else to begin than Afghanistan? Afghanistan's bordered there. Um, some of their people uh, mix with each other, so they may even share a common language. They may share uh, common uh, traditions. <coughs> It'll be easy, we'll just walk in and we'll take over. That was the beginning of the end, I believe, for the Soviet Union. They fought a war. I thought it would be an easy win. They did, but they weren't expecting. Um, the thing about history is that if you don't know history, as you know, as the old adage says, if you if you uh, don't learn history, you're condemned to repeat it. And there have been many nations that have tried to enter into Afghanistan and came away with nothing. Uh, Great Britain was one of them. Um, Soviet Union was another. United States is another. Um, <clears throat> Start to see uh, a here. Yes. And, um, you know, there's a lot of mythology. Um, I don't want to say mythology, but uh, uh, folklore behind, um, you know, them, you know, so they, I don't know how true this is, um, but I certainly wouldn't put it past anybody like the Taliban to wipe out, you know, they said they wiped out an entire regiment of British soldiers except one and to, so that he could go back home and tell everybody what he saw there, you know, um, whether that's true or not, I, I, I don't know. Um, but uh, Afghanistan not only brought was the beginning of the end of the Cold War because they had no way to really finance that kind of an imperialistic uh, campaign. Um, it ignited the international terrorist movement that we know today. Um, in fact, the United States supported the Mujahideen and um, against the Soviets. And um, uh, one of those leaders was a, uh, a young man by the name of Osama bin Laden, who uh, worked with them to, you know, to finance uh, that so it was the beginning of the end. Although I think really the beginning of the end for the Soviets was far earlier. This was really their linchpin. This was what? their water. This was their Waterloo. This was their uh, little big horn. You know, this was this was the event that was really really going to undermine Soviet supremacy. And um, eventually helped to bankrupt them. So why was but you, as you mentioned before, you said U.S. U.S. tried to enter Afghanistan, and you got Britain and now the Soviet Union as well. So why was Afghanistan this almost impossible nation to con to conquer? I think traditionally, um, 
they're an independent uh minded people um they're uh very good fighters and um you know i i i just don't think when you go <clears throat> you can't fight a conventional western war with guerrilla with people who are with a with a society that you know nothing of with weapons that i mean they were being beat i mean they went in with tanks and kalishnikov ak47 assault rifles and they were being beaten and then they were their weapons were being taken from from them by the guerrillas you know by the afghanistan freedom fighters and those were the same weapons that were being used against us in our fight against the Taliban to try to find Osama bin Laden uh, after 9-11. Right. So, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, it you know, the spirit of the people. it's the spirit of the people. And, the, you know, you can't fight a conventional war with somebody who's not going to fight conventionally. Right. It happened in Vietnam. It happened in Cambodia. It happened in Afghanistan. It happened throughout Africa. You know, you just, you you can't they're thinking in a different concept of warfare and that's that's why they didn't win that's why they didn't win yeah it's a cultural difference that we just won't understand in the west so uh, this brings us to, to 1989 and it, of course you have to mention this as uh, this is one of the possibly one of the biggest events one of the biggest events of the fall of soviet union and it's definitely want to start the fall of the Berlin Wall. So, what point did people get started get tired of the Berlin Wall and tired of seeing that wall there? <clears throat> I what made people realize that we don't want this here anymore. We want to tear it down. Well, I I, I believe that the people began to want to see the wall removed as soon as it was put up. Um, but if to fast forward, let's say 20 years later, uh, we have a man in power in the Soviet Union, a young political operative, um, named um, Mikhail Gorbachev, who... Was he the guy that gave them more freedom of press and more... It was, it was yes, uh, Glasnost, Perestroika. He was loosening some... Because the economy was devastated. Um, the, 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 the most prosperous part of the Soviet economy at that time was the black market. Um, people were disenchanted. There was a campaign. Uh, the people were depressed. They were spirits were broken. There was a campaign sponsored by the government to uh, encourage people not to drink so much uh, because alcohol consumption and alcoholism was such a, a problem. <clears throat> and uh, uh, Gorbachev was a committed communist 
but he saw that the only way to preserve communism was to loosen it you know say you know yeah. more of a pr campaign hey we aren't so bad you know sure, um, of course would backfire That's right and he opened he opened up you know they had he had negotiations with uh russia with uh, the united states excuse me um uh you know they began to uh, uh the soviet union while it was still a union uh the independent soviet states like um uh, the Ukraine and and other countries uh, were allowed an element of freedom to determine their own um, uh, future and how they wanted to operate. Um, and as you said, this sort of backfired on him because as in the 50s, they said, if we allow the Soviets to take a foothold in the Middle East, it's going to cause a domino effect and everybody's going to become communist. Well, he <clears throat> sort of started his own domino effect and um by loosening uh restrictions and sort of opening things up for you know a little more protest a little more free speech limiting the power of the kgb allowing people to uh trade freely for for money and profit and things like that um once they got just that little element of freedom that they had heard about they wanted more. The problem is, is that half of Europe is under domination by the Soviet Union. So these countries were resistant to Glasnost and Perestroika. Um, Moscow was losing control of these uh, other nations. The communists in power were now the reactionaries toward it and the people were just not going to take it anymore so in 19 uh what was it in 1989 i mean in, since 1979 there'd been an insurrection um the, the solidarity movement in poland which was run by you know catholics who had the support of the pope who was polish um and an ardent anti-communist himself so you see all of these pieces coming together and um so it wasn't just financial reasons that crossed it was it it was it was so you know you just you know when you're sick and tired of being sick and tired um and uh i would encourage you and and your your listeners um go to uh youtube or any other kind of video platform and you can see what happened you know nikolai ceausescu was one of the most feared dictators in all of Europe. And his last public speech, um, you can hear the audience railing at him and calling him a liar, calling him a murderer, and all this other stuff. So at, at that point, you can see this look on his face like, I've, I've lost it. So, and within uh, the next day, he and his wife were both. Uh, summarily convicted and, and murdered and a new government took over um uh to prevent that a lot of the other communist leaders just sort of stepped down or took lesser roles while reformers took over and dismantled the communist systems in their own country it was relatively peaceful in places like um uh hungary um and and um other places but poland um 
um, you know, I, I mean, it, it, it just it just sort of dominoed uh, to where these countries collapsed, um, and it brought up new problems that that would eventually uh, come to the service, uh, ethnic rivalries, religious rivalries that um, they weren't allowed to express under a Soviet uh, dictatorship. So um, it, it changed the world and, and uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, um, while a brilliant politician and very well-intended, um, had really no intentions of, of relinquishing the hold of the Communist Party over Russia itself, but that's exactly what happened. But it's doesn't matter exactly. Russians today considering a coward, if I remember, if I know correctly. I don't know how I know that he spends the remaining years of his life in quiet obscurity. Every once in a while he'll say something about environmental causes or peace. Um and accept a, an award or give a speech here and there, but I think he's relatively um, retired. I don't think, um, I don't know a lot of, of uh, um, people from Russia or Russian nationals, but I, I suspect that the opinion of Boris Yeltsin isn't very high either, you know? Um yeah, we're coming to an end, but I just want to talk a little bit about aftermath in the 90s, after the fall of the Soviet Union. What was it yes. like to rebuild the economy, to rebuild the Russian Federation to back to its for glory? You know, I think it was very difficult. Russia has a history of being run by strongman leaders. I think that's in their tradition. Um, I, I think there's always been a desire to want to change that. Um, but I, 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 so to see the rise of people like um, uh, Vladimir Putin, um, I don't think was should have been any surprise to anybody. I, I you know, he's um, certainly fits the mold of uh, leadership that they've had. Uh, they're, I think, um, as far as opening up to uh, free speech and free markets, I think that there was a period of time where they were uh, very open uh, to that. But I think now uh, they sort of settled into. Uh, their old traditions where um, press is allowed some freedom, but not a lot. I say it's um, a freedom of speech, but it's not really freedom of speech. Right. You know, they have freedom of religion, but do they really? You know what I mean? Um, it's, that, it's that kind of a, an element. I, I love Russia. I love Russian history. I love the Russian people. Um, I really, yes. Um, and, uh, once, um, uh, COVID is at least contained, um, <clears throat> uh, I plan on, uh, making a trip to Moscow, uh, 
um, very soon. So uh, there's a lot there. I, I think it's mostly traditional. I think it's mostly cultural. Um, I think they're yearning to breathe free or how we would define freedom here in in um, the Western, you know, quote unquote democracies. Um, but I don't think they're quite there yet. And I don't, I, I think they know that. Um, um, but I think that they know that there's also the potential for it to be there. So I have nothing but, but high hopes and aspirations for, right. for Russia and, you know, the other nations surrounding the Balkan States, the Ukraine, Belarus. all of these Belarus, these nations that have always long struggled, um, and, um, haven't quite gotten, um, they're just desserts at the table, you know, right. so. But uh, something I want to ask about, because we recently recent found this idea on YouTube, but is it true that Vladimir Putin now can be some, more or less a dictator until 20, or president until 2036, that they unveiled the rule that he can? I'm not sure how they're doing that now. I heard something um, that he can has the possibility to stay on the... I well, think he has the possibility to stay there as long as he wants to, because remember, he had been president and then prime minister and then president again. Am I correct on that? I think so. If I remember correctly. Yeah. So he's been, and even when he wasn't the president and the prime minister, he was the one pulling the strings. So um, I would say that that's probably a very safe uh, number. I wouldn't, I would expect him to even stay longer. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. He's basically a dictator at this point. Yeah. Basically, yeah. Is he the worst dictator that they've ever had? Probably not. Probably not. But you know, I mean he's it's it's that tradition, that strongman tradition. And um um you know, will time will tell how that, that works out for I think people. that's bringing the end to this podcast. A fantastic episode, if I may say so. And uh, before you go, do you have anything you wish to promote or uh, social media you wish me to publish on the description? I don't, but um, uh, at this point, but I, I will tell uh, your listeners that I am working on a book of uh, historical uh, fiction that uh, talks about some of the issues that we were talking about, the end of World War II. Uh, so once that is uh, completed, um, uh, hopefully very soon, um, they will have the opportunity to uh, uh, purchase it or download it to their um, devices. So, Perfect. Very exciting. This has been Well That Aged Well. My name is Alan Hedrard, and uh, we are also on Instagram and at, that, at Well That Aged Well. We are available every week, and next week we will talk about ancient Greece. So look forward, stay tuned for next week. And uh, yeah, this has been a fantastic episode. Like, please like, share, and subscribe. And I'll see you next week. Thank you very much.